Our Father, we're the continuing presence of Scripture down through the centuries. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit, who authored the Scripture, is also in our hearts as Christians to open those Scriptures to us. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would open our hearts to the great truths of who you are and how you work in history. We ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to, um, as, we, as we get into this section on the golden era and of Solomon, um, I just want to, again, review as we come into this section um, that we're dealing here in the large scale with the doctrine of sanctification and that <clears throat> no matter what detail we will be in or are in, that these details all fall in a cluster of truth known as sanctification. <clears throat> um, back when we ended last, the last section, we had talked about uh, item 8 and 9, the conquest and settlement and the accession and reign of David. Both of those events are historical pictures of sanctification. And they set up the categories that <clears throat> in this handout that I gave you tonight, there should be two charts. <clears throat> and the first chart in there summarizes those five categories. Now these aren't, this isn't the only way to deal with sanctification, but it's, it's a way that I find useful. <clears throat> and you'll notice in that chart that we deal with the phases, the aim, and the different things. Um, and I've tried to, in that chart, summarize some of the historical illustrations. There are a lot more historical illustrations, obviously, and we've even gone over that aren't in the chart. <clears throat> but what I want you to see tonight is to be able to look at these events now in the light of Genesis, in the light of the rest of the Pentateuch in the light of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and think in terms of how God progresses. Do any of you notice, as this doctrine progresses through here, what are the prerequisites for talking about things like the Christian life? Um, what I'm doing here is pointing out something it doesn't usually happen in our evangelical churches because what happens is, is that we, too fast, I believe, we get into the doctrines of the Christian life. What we're, what we're taking for granted is that we understand all the preparatory doctrines, all the preparatory truths that have to be assumed in order for the truths of the Christian life to work. And... Look at, the, look at the sequence of events now we study, just in a large scale. Back here, we dealt with creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. Those four events, first year around the second unit of the course, um, we dealt with the basics of God, man, and nature. And that set the frame of reference. But you can't talk about salvation, can't talk about sin, can't talk about Christian life unless those truths are fixed. So there's, there's no way around it. And, and this sequence of events controls... If, here's a tool. It's a tool. 
And sometimes maybe um, you can use this to kind of diagnose spiritual problems. Um, just because we may be having a problem in some area of the Christian life may not be due to the fact that that area is where the problem is. It could be up in here, understanding what, who the Creator is. It could be understanding the, what the fall and the whole issue of evil is about. Uh, it could be the institutions that were laid out at po- this creation, point one and point four, the Noahic Covenant. The authority structures of marriage, family, and in, in point four, civil government. Um, maybe if we don't understand, for example, the authority structures here, we can't understand the authority structures that God uses in sanctification. Who could take somebody, and I've seen this many times, um, who was raised in a very um, liberal, promiscuous home. And when these people become Christians, they have one difficult row to hoe. Because all of a sudden now they find out that God doesn't run his family like the way their parents ran that family. And the, the simple concepts of submission to an authority are missing, just missing. And you can't go very far in the Christian life without the Lord dealing with that problem. Because he is going to deal with that problem because he is the authority. And he will show who is the authority. So that's an example of the fact it's not that we don't understand something about the Christian life. It's something we don't understand about simple human authority. So that's why there's a danger in our own time because... We're so weak on those first four points that I think we're misinterpreting a lot of the other stuff that comes after. And later on next year, we get into who Jesus Christ is and how he was born and his work on the cross. You'll see that that's incomprehensible apart from all this preparatory work that God used in the sequence in which he wrote the Bible. So, I can't emphasize most strongly to start thinking sequentially if you're not already thinking sequentially. Ask yourself, where in the flow did this truth come in? And it kind of puts things in perspective. So, those four events we've belabored and said that that sets up the basic basic foundational truths. And then we spent time uh, in the center section with the call of Abraham, the Exodus, and Sinai. Now, how would we characterize that? That's dealing with God setting up a counterculture in history. That sets up how we ought to think about salvation. That sets up God's interference, his rescue work, as it were, as he invades, disturbs, and causes turmoil in history by his intervention. So those three are... are key things. The call of Abraham, this thing is is very offensive to to a lot of evangelical Christians that God chooses. I mean, you know, I mean, like, doesn't he supposed to choose? I mean, he's sovereign. What's the problem here? But we have people that really get offended when they they come face to face with the idea that God chooses. And he doesn't ask for their opinions when he chooses. Doesn't form a committee. He just chooses. How arrogant of God to do that. 
That's his sovereignty. And that's what happened to the call of Abraham. He didn't ask for a vote when he called Abraham. Then we come to the Exodus. And here you have that picture of massive, catastrophic intervention. Judgment, salvation. All the way to the point of dying children. Firstborn, dead. And what a cruel God in Scripture, people will think. But that's what it takes to separate good from evil. And if we're going to sit here and whine and bellyache about all the evil in the world, and then at the same time when God reaches down and tries to separate the good and the evil, and there's all kinds of sparks that fly, we don't like that either. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either we sit and whine and fuss about all the evil in the world, or we come over here and accept the fact that it's going to take a strong solution to solve the problem, and God is going to shake the furniture when he interferes, and that's the exodus. That's a picture of salvation. And it gets us away from thinking in terms of psychological salvation, that it's just internal to the heart. Then we went into the conquest and settlement, and it was in these areas where that chart that I gave tonight, uh, we'll cover that more next time, but I'm using it just to summarize what we're doing here in the area of sanctification because obviously in this section I've given out tonight, page 11, um, we're going to draw the doctrinal conclusion to this event that we're studying in Solomon's great era, the golden era. And those events shape the sanctification era, the, war, the holy war, the accession of David. And it's, it's offensive. We even have Christians in churches who have actively argued that we need revisions of our hymn books to eliminate hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers because those kind of hymns promote violence. And my answer to that is, how do you separate good and evil without violence? There has to be a thread of violence in the scripture. And we have to be careful in our objections to bad violence, to bad violence, we cannot object in a fallen world to violence per se. The civil government, the emblem of civil government's authority in the scripture is what? The sword. That's a tool of violence. When Jesus Christ says he rules the nations with a rod of iron, that's a tool of violence. He hits people with it. And when he comes back, his garments are saturated with blood. That's violence, bloody violence. So get used to it. And the reason we say get used to it is, not to be facetious, but the hardest struggles uh, that we go through are spiritually violent struggles up here in our heads. Massive amount of violence goes on up here of choosing God's will over against all the temptation, all the crud, all the pressure all the peer pressure and all the other things daily that we have to make choices. And we can choose to be passive, lie down, let the world roll over us, and just, just not be actively obedient. And active obedience precipitates a violence. It precipitates a spiritual violence of the principalities and powers. And they don't like it and they're going to fight back. We're not going to win all the battles. We win the war. But we're not going to win all the battles. 
because the principalities and powers are going to fight us. They are not going to let us take ground. They are, I mean, they're powerful, they're strong, they're more intelligent than we are, and they can really screw us up. But we have to say, like David did with Goliath, who are these uncircumcised Philistines, these rebellious creatures who choose to rebel against the creator of the universe? Who do they think they are? And I don't want to be aligned with them. And that is standing up to a, a, a terrorizing, intimidating kind of enemy. And that's why we have onward Christian soldiers, mighty fortresses are God, and those hymns. They're there to breed an attitude that we need in sanctification. Okay, so we've come now to... Then we, we went into this area of the, of the land, remember? And how did that end? Israel couldn't get all the land. Remember, there was the, the event, the judgment at Bochim, the Valley of Tears. Bochim, as the Hebrew word, means tears. And the tears were shed because God said, I'm not going to, you know, you guys, I gave you the land. You could have taken it all, and you didn't. So, you're not going to get it all. Not gonna, I'm not going to push the enemies out anymore. And what you got is what you got, and that's it. And, of course, that means that the land will never be theirs or Israel's until the Messiah comes back. They had the opportunity to do it their way and screwed up. So now it's on hold until Jesus comes back. Well, the same thing's going to happen when we get now into the last time we dealt with, just as in this area, they could have gotten the land together. In Solomon's era, they could have erected a Bible-friendly culture. They did a lot to do that, but they lost it. And that's the lesson just like back here we learned, they weren't aggressively obedient and they lost the opportunity to get all the real estate. Well, here, they had the opportunity to, to, to actually generate one of the finest cultures in human history. Now, if you go back to page five, when I start this, started this whole thing, I made a point when I defined culture. And I want to take you back to page five in the notes and then we're going to go to a passage of scripture. Um, in Solomon's era, we said last time, gave examples of his wealth, gave examples of his architecture, gave examples of his commerce, his businesses, uh, his tax revenues. Uh, this guy was fantastic. There was a tremendous amount of wealth and, and culture there. But what we want to see, and it's the second sentence, the third sentence, in that paragraph at the bottom of page five, Traditionally, and this, this is a contemporary issue right here. This is where it's at right now. Traditionally, culture is viewed as a religiously and ethically neutral description of social life. Since on a pagan basis, religious and, ethical, and ethics, uh, should be religions and ethics, merge, emerge from and are defined by the culture. Now, just, let's take that sentence apart a minute. Culture is viewed as neutral because religious and ethics are secondary to the culture. This is what I mean. This is what everybody out there is thinking today. All the talk shows, all the magazines, all the TV that you get. Steady diet of this thing. And it's an era. So let's look at the era. The era is that we have culture that is 
viewed as a neutral description of human behavior. And we may have a people group here, a people group here, A1, A2 to AN, all kind of different people groups. And these people in their culture develop this ethic. These people over here develop E2. These people develop EN. So all the cultures are developing their own ideas of right and wrong. And that's why we get into school and we have a discussion. Well, gee, Jimmy, what do you think? And, you know, you don't run a math class that way, do you? Well, I guess you do now. We have fuzzy math. What was it, Ron? Uh, some, uh, how to two birds on a fence... Yeah, so that's the new math test, um, going to the birds. Uh, but but it, presumably, if there are real ethics, they should, is two plus two is four? Is something right or is it wrong? There's a standard here. Well, there is no standard there as far as most people are concerned because of this. They claim that it's out of the culture, the culture builds the ethic. Why is that? What's behind this idea? Something's behind it. Do you see lurking behind that? A heresy. A basic heresy. It goes back to the very first event. What's the first event? Creation. So who preceded in his holiness man's conscience? The creator. So if you get creation started, you have the standard in God's heart as his holiness. Didn't, you know, Adam and Eve or Johnny come lightly to this whole process. At, you know, God's been going on for some time. And now all of a sudden Adam and Eve come along. What they're generating isn't new. It's derivative of what was there before. God's holiness. So the pre-existing creator is the source of value. It's not the culture. It's the creator. And you can't, I mean, it's one or the other. And that's, that's where we part company. We have to say we're sorry. We're sorry as believers. We don't agree with that. Well, you have to accept everything. Fine. We're gracious to people. But that doesn't mean we buy into their ideas. Tolerance is not the same thing as neutrality. We don't have to be neutral. We do have to be gracious and tolerant. Now, if you watch the sentence, the next one I say... Occasionally, see, here's the dilemma, if you think that way. Occasionally, history shocks mankind with something like cannibalism or the Nazi phenomena so that even committed unbelievers slip into moral judgment. Inevitably, they make a judgment that says that was not uncomfortable, but that was what? Bad. Ooh, now where are we getting a judgment? If I'm a German, 1930s, why can't I argue? You have no right. I'm in people group A1. You people are in people group A2. What right do you have with your ethic to judge mine? See? That's the dilemma you wind up with. And biblically speaking, we cannot share that because of our belief in a creator who preceded man. Okay. What we're saying now in Solomon's era having said that, is that the culture is caused by something prior to it. So if you come over now to page 7, 
We're going to pick up some of the Bible verses that show this. The culture that Solomon and his contemporaries built was a culture that was grounded on a principle. Down here we have the Word of God. And that Word of God expresses something about the structure of the universe. Let's turn to Proverbs because the first eight chapters of Proverbs define wisdom. The biblical wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Many of us who have been Christians for a while are well aware of this verse, but it's good to keep coming back to it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, there's an authority structure. There's an authority structure. And the culture is built on the authority down here, the Word of God. And out of this is built a structure. And it takes generations to build that. That's the thing about wisdom. It's amazing that this could have been built in one generation in Solomon's time. But it was built because it's an inheritance of his dad, David's time, and some of the godly prophets, Samuel, some of the guys in the judges period. So it wasn't really developed overnight. But it was rapidly developed, but it it was developed by a group of people. And those people had as the basis the Word of God because they believed in the authority of Scripture. The fear of the Lord, that's what that means. The respect for His authority is the starting point. Remember we started off last year and the year before, we are talking about presuppositions and how important presuppositions are? We could also say that presuppositions are like predispositions. A predisposition of the heart to honor the authority of God. And obviously when you define a presupposition that way, now all of a sudden we see why repentance is necessary in order to believe in the gospel. What is repentance? Changing of the presupposition, a changing of the predisposition at a very basic root level. So it's not, not talking surface conversion, we're talking a profound heart conversion down at the deepest levels. Now, Proverbs goes on to describe this, and, and it describes it in terms of a woman. Um, and they, sometimes it's, it's masculine, for example, in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Um, and, and by the way, notice of all the social vehicles, which one do you notice is doing the educating in the Scripture? Civil government? family. Now, that's not to say you can't hire a teacher and so on, but the obvious point here is that the school educational establishment should be under the controls of the family. And that's biblical. Who is doing the teaching here? And it goes on and describes, of course, uh, wisdom is sometimes sp spoken of as lady wisdom and lady folly. There's a metaphor in, in these chapters. And that's not without a profound reason. When Adam was created originally without Eve, how did the Bible describe Adam's existence? It didn't say, by the way, he was lonely. I mean, he might have been lonely, but that's interesting. That's not the Hebrew word. What it said is that he was alone. 
not necessarily that he was lonely, but he was alone and he needed a helper. And the helper, the woman is brought in as this helper to someone who had a predefined calling, which is kind of interesting. And she is a helper. And he can't complete his task without that helper. Well, the analogy is that we, as men and women, need this helper, and it's called kakma, or wisdom. And it is that that becomes the ground of biblical culture. Where you don't have a biblical culture, you have a foolish culture. There's, no, there's either a wise culture or a stupid culture. And, of course, you know which one we have. And it's because the wisdom has drained out of it. Daily it is being drained out, bled off. Like the latest episode in Alabama with this judge saying that the kids can't have any religious expression in the public schools, and then the story goes on to point the real reason it ever got in the courtroom was because the principal of the school got angry at the Christian students. I mean, they have prayers before class. We can't have that in my class. That offends me. And what really finally offended him was that the Christian kids were going around the school with a little bracelet, WWJD. And it, it was an abbreviation for what would Jesus do? And it was just a thing the kids wore on their wrists. And that got him so angry, he called a bunch of lawyers together and said, how can we stop the kids from doing this? Now, this is the animosity and the hatred for Christianity that's developing in this country. Now, for crying out loud, you know, if the kids brought guns and drugs and knives in, yeah, let's, do, let's call the lawyers, call the police. But here you've got Christian kids who have the audacity to pray following all the rules, and they have a little bracelet with WWJD on it, and this becomes tremendously offensive. This is a real state issue here. And this is what's going on just this week. You can imagine how many thousands of dollars it took them to get to the court levels. You know where that money came from? Somebody. Somebody doesn't like us paying that kind of money. So this culture issue is a very contemporary one, and that's why we're going to spend some time on, so at least we get oriented to what Solomon and his people were trying to do in developing a Bible-friendly culture. Proverbs chapter 8 gives you the, the, the basics of it. Proverbs chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. For those of you following the notes, it's page 7. Here is what wisdom looks like biblically. We go to chapter 8, verse 22, because we want to avoid a false view of wisdom. Here's the false view of wisdom. That wisdom is just a set of success rules. And a lot of people think that. Now, there are success rules in the book of Proverbs. And they equate wisdom with shrewdness. They equate wisdom um, with how to do it stuff. The problem with that approach is, and, and those of you who are in business people and, and you've worked with organizations, every once in a while you have, you have somebody in your organization, usually up in senior level management, decides they're going to get some of these courses in. And these courses are going to teach you how to be sensitive or something like that. And some of them are just absolutely ludicrous. I mean, you have to go to them because you're the employee, but you sit there and say, holy mackerel, you know, I don't have enough time to do my job and they've got me wasting my time doing this stuff. You know, where do they get these people? What planet does this stuff come from? And 
there goes the profits, by the way. You know, how many, how many dollars are we putting in the budget in this organization and that stuff? But that's not the biblical view of wisdom. Scripturally, wisdom flows. The success rules flow out of something bigger. And something bigger is here. Chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Now, think of this for a minute. Before his works of old, from everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water should not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Now, this isn't talking just about wisdom inside the church. This is talking about wisdom inside the entire creation. That's the big base that we have here. Said in a nutshell... The idea of wisdom in Scripture is that this is God's design. It's the design of us, of our social life, of every little detail, every molecule, every spirit, every angel, every thought is embedded in this principle of wisdom. That's why there can be success rules in the Bible only because of this prior big picture of wisdom who was there when God created the universe. Now, beginning on page 7, I'm going to describe some of the features of this wisdom. This is what is the root of Israel's culture. The first thing that it did for them, because we want to ask, what does wisdom do for us? Because, by the way, now when you read the New Testament and you go into some of the New Testament epistles like Colossians, Watch the word W-I-S-D-O-M, wisdom, and watch how many times it's used of Jesus Christ. See, many scholars believe that chapter 8, verse 22 is an actual theophany of the second person of the Trinity. That the one who was beside the Father was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom. This is why John the Apostle calls him the Logos of the world. And so, this is why Jesus is, is more than just a religious figure. Jesus is also the, the grand center of the design of the cosmos. He carries the blueprint, so to speak. Very powerful picture of Jesus. Well, this, this then leads us, and it's going to lead us to some exciting conclusions later, but right now, let's look at this. First one, biblical wisdom gave unity to all the details of life. In that Solomonic era, they had people from every walk of life. <clears throat> Behind each and every event lies God's overarching creative genius. And look at the quote I quote from Dr. Wybie. The interests of the men who surrounded David and Solomon were not confined to politics. These men constituted the cultural elite of the nation, and the educational system by which they had been trained prepared its pupils not merely for a professional career. Watch this now. Think of our educational system. 
it prepared not merely for a professional career. I mean, it would be great if we could even prepare for a professional career in most cases here. But not merely for a career, but for the enjoyment of life in all its aspects. For the enjoyment of life for all of its aspects. Making no distinction between the ethical, social, political, and cultural, but regarding them all as comprised within the single notion of the good. Yes, you could... Dis you could train in math and you could train in literature and you could train in politics and you could train over here. But the idea was that these weren't compartments. These were just stations. You could walk from one to the other. And it breeds a sense of completeness. And I think that's one of our problems today is that we've, we've grown up in a fragmented culture. We've had this idea that, you know, all my life I've trained to be an engineer. All my life I've trained to be a musician. All my life, uh, I've been raising kids. Uh, all my life, uh, I've run my business. And we kind of brainwash ourselves into thinking we can't do anything else. And worst of all, we, can't, we brainwash ourselves into thinking we can't see God in everything. You know, over here where I know what I'm doing, I can kind of see a little bit of his handiwork. But I don't know anything over there. That's not the mentality. If we have a really profound idea of biblical wisdom, we ought to be able to walk into any area, not become expert in it, but basically know where it fits in the big scheme of things. And that's the idea. It gives unity to the details of life. What do we call a college when it gets big? Where's the unity? Say, very interesting. If there's no absolute truth, and there's nothing to hold it together, why are we calling it a university? The reason we call it a university today is because it's under one administration. But that's not the old-fashioned way. The idea of the university originally was it's the unity in the diversity. That's where the word comes from. But ask an average college student where the unity is today. See? Biblical wisdom literature reflects this wide scope of interest. And there I, I show you how each of these books in that wisdom section of the scripture, they, they span the length of life. Job, suffering, Ecclesiastes, philosophic reflection, Song of Songs, marital love and sex, Psalms and Chronicles, musical expressions of praise, Daniel, national strategy in the light of God's strategy, Proverbs, attitudes toward work and social life. And see what wisdom did? There weren't sacred, sacred and secular things and they weren't specialists. So one of the things it does, it radically transforms your whole idea of what it means to be an educated person. You see, being an educated person biblically doesn't mean you have a lot of degrees after your name. You may never even go to school. Some of the finest educated people I have ever met have been self-educated people who have read, first of all, the very fact they didn't have to go to school or couldn't go to school because they didn't have money to go to school or opportunity to go to school. They learned how to read. And they have that discipline of learning how to read makes them very good Bible students. Some of the best Bible students are people who never had a degree, never even finished college. Why? Because they have learned. You know, one of the finest pastors in this country has ever seen in the 20th century was A.W. Tozer. You know, A.W. Tozer never graduated from a seminary. A.W. Tozer never went to college that I know of. A.W. Tozer has written some of the finest devotional literature in the history of the Christian church. And how did he do that? You know the story they used to tell about A.W. Tozer, how he learned? He asked God to teach him how to read. 
And they said that when you walked into Tozer's study, he would take a book, Aristotle, off the shelf, and he'd open Aristotle, he'd get down on his knees and ask God to teach him the thoughts of this man. And that's how he learned Aristotle. And in his preaching and teaching, he would bring these great thinkers in. And for years, he had one of the finest ministries in this country in Chicago. And his written book, Pursuit of God, I mean, classics. And all of it was because he never went to college. And I'm not saying don't go to college, but I'm just saying, here's a guy that made it fun without any degree, just simply, humbly asking God to open his mind so he could understand these things. That picture of A.W. Tozer is a picture of biblical wisdom at work. Okay, let's go on for another characteristic. On page 8, second one, wisdom applies to all men. Let's look at how, remind ourselves, turn to 1 Kings 5 for a moment. Look what Solomon did. In 1 Kings 5, there's a, there's a description there of Solomon's relationship with the king of Tyre. And he's talking about a deal. These guys got together and they, they, they set up a deal. And verse 6, he's asking the king of Tyre to supply him with the raw materials for his architectural masterpiece, the cedars of Lebanon. It's command for me, they cut me cedars in Lebanon. My servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all you say, for you know there is no one among us. Now look at that, verse 6. This is a Hebrew Christian. This is a Hebrew speaking. This is Solomon speaking. In all of his racial identity as a Jew, what does he say at the end of verse 7? You know there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Now, let's think of the principle. Solomon is importing things into his kingdom. Lumber. What else is he importing? Skills. Why can Solomon import the skills of the Sidonian carpenters? How could he do that without compromising his position if wisdom isn't universal? You see, because who designed the trees? Who made the men who were made in God's image that cut the trees? See, there's a higher order to this. And because there's a higher order, that's how we can import. It's, let's put it this way. It's controlled imports. It's not importing everything. Of course, the problem was Solomon over-imported, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he, he should have filtered his inputs. He is no, it's all right to go to non-Christian scholarship if you filter it. We can't, we'll never be able to dig all the archaeological sites in, the, in the Palestine. Let the unbelievers dig it up. If there's a piece of pottery, I'll bring you a piece of pottery next time that I dug up. It's a neat one, about 1,000 B.C. date on it. It's kind of neat. You can see the fingerprints of the person who made it. And it you know, gives you kind of a feel, gee, you know, there was a person who made this little piece of pottery in 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. And you wonder, gee, if, what could this, if this pottery could speak to us, I wonder what the history is. Did it ever see Goliath? It was down the area where Goliath was. So can we bring pottery in? Can we bring potters in? Can we bring these guys in? Yes. Can we bring Christian music, non-Christian music in? Yes, if it's filtered. And see, that's the problem. 
what we do is we don't have the filters in place, so we either import everything or we're scared that we don't have the filter, so we don't import anything. Now, what would Solomon have done if he didn't have, if he said, I'm not going to have anything relationship with the Sidonians? Well, then he's not going to get his temple built. Because what does verse 6 say? There's no one among us who knows how to cut the timber like they do. So, I'm going to import them. I'm going to import those skills. So, here's a second point about wisdom. It applies to all men. Unbelievers in areas can be very wise. We have to be discerning on when to say, yeah, that, that is wise. And that's stupid. And that, that's just alertness. We have to know where to do it. But what I'm cautioning here at this, at this point is a, is a powerful truth. Wisdom is applied to all men everywhere, believer and unbeliever alike. Third point. Wisdom, when followed, gave blessing, and when rejected, gave cursing. Now, this is a principle Paul picks up in the Gospel. Paul's argument in the New Testament is that when a person is negative toward God, inevitably, Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 4 and those other passages, what does he say happens to the heart of this kind of a person? It darkens and becomes, what's the word he uses? Foolish. And he's talking about the non-Christian here. And he's talking about the non-Christian becoming foolish. Like the non-Christian at one point wasn't foolish, and he became foolish. Well, we would say, well, he's always foolish as a non-Christian. Well, yeah, in an absolute degree. But what he's saying is, unbelief, when it gets consistent with itself, gets progressively foolish. And that's what we're seeing in the legal community right now. The basis for law, which was the Ten Commandments, has been cut off. I mean, we have a judge that can't even put the Ten Commandments up in his courtroom. Now, what a joke. Anybody, first-year law student, knows where did common law come from in the history of the world. It came from Europe. And what was the influence in Europe? The Bible. Now, don't sit here and give me this grief that the law just dropped down from the ceiling. It came from the Bible. So this is what is foolish. This is really stupid to cut the Ten Commandments out from the law because the law historically came from the Ten Commandments. It didn't come from it. It didn't come from Hammurabi. It didn't come from the Eskimos. It came from Europe. British common law. Roman law. Roman law was principled, uh, after, really parallel to, to, to Torah, Jew, Jewish law. Okay, so we have the third point then. Wisdom, when followed, gave blessing, and when rejected, gave cursing. And this is why, lowest paragraph, page 8, I quote Deuteronomy 4.6. In fact, let's turn to Deuteronomy 4.6 to be sure we get the context. Look at the word that is used to describe the Torah. Moses says, Deuteronomy 4.6, Do the things of the Torah, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What is it the other pagan nations are looking at that gives them the idea that the Jews have wisdom? 
They're looking at their laws. Stupid people have stupid laws. Wise people have wise laws. Really, this is not being sarcastic. This is being serious. A wise culture will have wise legislation, and a stupid culture will have stupid legislation. All of them have laws. But some laws are stupid and some aren't. And that's what Moses is saying here, that there's a testimony, there's a measuring stick. By looking at a society and asking yourself, what are the controlling principles that govern this people? And from that, Moses says, you can decide what's going on. And by the way, the Ten Commandments, verse 6, notice, with all due respect for the judge in Alabama, uh, the people that persecuted the judge in Alabama, look at what verse 6 is saying. Who's speaking verse 6 through Moses? God is. What is the assertion of verse 6 with respect to the Ten Commandments versus any other law code? Which is better? Ten Commandments. And which is the one being excluded from American court? See? There's a perversity here. A real profound perversity that's going on. So, that's the third point. The third point is that wisdom blesses people. And foolishness is a cursing. And it is act, it's tied in with the law. And the law was measured by the noun describing, qualifying it as a wise thing. Now, four. Fourth truth. Page nine. Wisdom gives a framework for creativity. It's like this. Back in Genesis 1, God spoke things into existence and then he called the day, remember? And then he called the darkness night. And then it says, and God called. And God sets up a structure. And then about the fourth day, I think it is, it doesn't that mean God just stops naming? What does he tell Adam to do? Name. Who started the naming? God did. Who finishes the naming? Man does. Man gets his framework from God. God tells him the day and the night and the heavens and the earth. He gives it the frame. And then he brings the little dogs and cats and lizards to Adam. And he says, what are their names? Now, we want to go back to something there. Going back and look very carefully at a clause in Genesis 2.19. When that naming started, there's something I pointed out back then, but, and I said I'd come to it, so now I'm coming to it. Um, Genesis 2.19 and 20, there's a little sneaky clause in there I want you to look at. It says God had formed every beast there. And by the way, guys and girls that are going to class, verses 18, 19, and 20 of Genesis 2 will be your favorite teacher's excuse to ridicule Scripture by saying, ooh, there's a conflict between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, if the teacher tells you that, you can just tell them that in the Hebrew it's pluperfect. Probably won't know what pluperfect is, but... Uh, the idea there is that the verb is past tense. Out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast. It's describing the beast that he's bringing, not saying he's building them then. It's saying he's had, he had built them and he's bringing them to Adam. To see what the man would call them. Now look at the last clause. 
What does it say about the naming? What do you gather from that clause about the power and the authority of man? It's our right to creatively subdue our environment. There's freedom there. As long as we stay within the constraints of wisdom, God gives us creative freedom. And whatever, whatever Adam named it, that was it. The picture I want you to avoid thinking of here is that Adam's sitting here and here comes this little toad going along. And Adam looks down at it and he's trying to consider what the name is. And he gets very pious. And he turns around, well, I'm going to, whatever the Lord's will is, I'm going to name it. Now, what's wrong with that picture in this verse? If he sees the toad, he's going to call it a toad. And, he, and if he turns around and asks God, what do I name this thing? What does God say? Whatever you want to name it. I'm not going to tell you what to name it. Now, I think that's an exciting verse. Because that's an area where you can't find the will of God. There's no will of God here. Now, that's kind of scary thought, isn't it? until you realize that it's a privilege. That he thinks enough of you and me to entrust us with the power to create in a, in a limited area our own, our own knowledge and understanding of his creation. Isn't that what an artist does? Don't they interpret? They sit on a, on a canvas and they sit there and they think about the creation they're seeing and they depict it. They don't ask God, what color do I use? You know, what brush, what tool on the canvas? Now, they may ask God for inspiration to see things, but the idea here is that that is human creativity. And that takes place inside a wise framework. And that's why we struggle, why these, these culture wars we have to establish wisdom and absolutes are so critical. If you don't have a wisdom structure in your society based on absolutes, you are going to destroy creativity. Mark my words. There will be no creativity. The only creativity will be released in evil, creating new ways to sin. That's the only creativity you're going to find. So, the fourth thing about biblical wisdom, it gave those men in Solomon's time a springboard for creativity, and out of that mushroomed all the great literature of the wisdom section of the Old Testament, out of that mushroomed the Levitical choirs, out of that mushroomed the fantastic music that they had in worshiping God. All that creativity burst in a, in a womb that was prepared with wisdom. Fifth point, page six. Biblical wisdom spread throughout the world. You, I want you to look carefully at the, at the last half of page 9. And I, I'll just read this because of the, it would take us time to go to the references. It is well known that King Solomon had very intimate contacts with the Phoenician civilization among Palestinian coastal areas near Tyre. After Solomon, uh, King Ahab later married into Sidonian royalty. Not unexpectedly, Israel's literary movement shows definite signs of intercourse with Phoenicia. Although he dated much of the Old Testament wisdom literature later than Bible-believing scholars, the famous Johns Hopkins archaeologist W.F. Albright discovered an ideological and literary link between Israel and Phoenicia. Now here's why this is so crucial. For those of you who have gone to college and you've, or, or you've read Plato or you've read Aristotle and you've read a little bit about philosophy, you remember that when you got in that course, the first thing that was usually made was we don't know what started this movement. 
There's not a sign of it in, in Greek history until 600 B.C. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's there, all fully developed. Where did it come from? Did a Martian bring philosophy to Athens? Where did this start? Or did the Greeks just have, a, have an inspiration? I don't believe so. Here is what Albright, unfortunately he died before he got the forthcoming book. But look at this, the, the, the thought in this quote. In a forthcoming book, I shall deal with the origins of the new ways of thinking which seemed suddenly to appear among the Greeks in the early 6th century. I trace them back to a general intellectual movement which probably first appeared in Phoenicia, from which it spread more or less contemporaneously to Israel on the one hand, to the Aegean shores on the other. The roots of this movement will, can be traced in the earlier literature of Israel. We have in Koheleth, which is the book of Ecclesiastes, Hebrew name for it, some of the raw material on which the earliest Greek philosophers built their metaphysical structures. Profound point. Western philosophy may well have been rooted in King Solomon. Not Plato. Not Aristotle. Solomon. Now why? Why is this? Here's the dilemma. And it's not just an academic point. Okay? It sounds academic, but let me show you the political and social consequences. Plato was a failed Greek politician. He, he, he just kind of tubed out in his political career and he retreated off and set up the academy and did his thing. And He was going to train young Greek men on how to rule a nation. He didn't set out there to write a book. What is one of his, Plato's famous books? It's called The Republic. So his whole idea was to create a perfect society. And he, wanted, he just went out in this think tank and decided to do that. And out of that came a lot of philosophy. The problem is that he, had, he was able to do what he was going to do about a perfect society only because he knew somehow, quote, unquote, that there was truth out there. See, before Plato, they weren't even sure there was such a thing as real truth that would endure, that you could talk about, the two plus two is four kind of thing. Plato had that. Nobody can clue where did he get the idea from on which he could build all this stuff. And I'm simply suggesting to you that historically he probably borrowed it from a tradition that started with Solomon. Where did Solomon get it? Solomon got it because of biblical wisdom of Proverbs 8. So what does this tell you now about the structure of our civilization? It's rooted in what? We go back to what we started with. We go back to the Word of God. And where you have a rebellion against the Word of God, you are going to have profoundly serious effects on a chaotic society. And you can show it from centuries. We're not, this is not some religious preacher saying this. This is the history of the world. And where you undermine that idea of wisdom, your buildings will topple. You have destroyed the foundations. Okay, now what happened, if you turn to page 10, we'll conclude with what happened to Solomon. If he was so wise, what went wrong? I've entitled this, The Rot in Israel's Cultural Fruit. Turn to Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, if you will, please. We're going to have to return to that next week, but I want to start anyway. 17.17. 17. 
One of the instructions to the king. The instruction of the king was that he shall not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, and he shall greatly increase gold and so forth for himself. Now, isn't that a strange thing? Or nor shall he say the thing. Why is that in there, in verse 17? What were, what were royal wives all about? I mean, what were these princesses that were married off? Their role was to solidify nations. They acted as sort of hostages. I don't know whether you saw it in the paper last week, but the Russians have uh, had a big debate because they, they went out into some town somewhere and they dug up the bones and they think the bones are of Tsar Nicholas II, who was reigning on the Russian throne in the days of the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks came in, and it's a famous story. They came in and they shot and killed the Tsar. They shot and killed his wife. They shot and killed all of his family. Gunned them all down. And... Um, so they think they found the bones. Well, well, they want to do a DNA analysis on the bones. So they've got to find contemporary people that are related to Tsar Nicholas. Who did they go to? Prince Philip of England. And they took, bones, uh, they took DNA samples from Prince Philip to find out and check whether the DNA out of the set of bones fits Prince Philip. We say, well, wait a minute. Prince Philip is, uh, is in the royalty of England. What's he got to do with the royalty of Russia? Well, what do we know, those of you who have studied European history? They were all intermarried. The Romanov family in Russia was deeply intermarried, and, and, and this is one of the things, because in Tsar Nicholas II's lifetime, one of the people he had in his court was a demonic per person by the name of Rasputin, who was a monk, and he had tremendous... Some think that that's what caused the whole mess with Tsar Nicholas and the communists. But here we have Rasputin, who was a, was a monk... Very demonic man. They shot him. They, they drowned him. They, they tried five ways to kill this guy before they finally made it. But this guy just wouldn't die. Very demonic type person. And Rasputin, his control over the Tsar and his wife was that he could control the bleeding from the hemophilic son of Tsar Nicholas II. Now, the problem was, why do we have so many hemophiliac children in the royal families of Europe? And the answer is because they intermarried. They kept intermarrying. Why was there so much intermarriage in the royalty of Europe? Why do you suppose they wanted to do that? They wanted, that was their way of tying the nations together. We have a problem. You know, my little Julie, well, she's the princess over there, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and invade this guy because he's got my daughter. So it kind of cooled relationships by trading daughters around. And these girls would go around, get married off, and, these prince, and this, is, this was going on. Well, this went on in Solomon's time. Now, the deeper question we're going to come to next week is, here's some questions. Think about them. The Bible prohibited intermarriage with Gentiles in the Old Testament for Jews. If that's so, and we, we can show that, Mosaic Law. If that's so, how do you explain the book of Ruth? Now, that's the point, and we're going to have to talk about that. What is the book of Ruth doing in the canon of Scripture when it's a deliberate marriage, intermarriage, between the royal line of David, going to David through Boaz, and this Gentile woman? When the law says you shouldn't do that. Second question. Why 
theologically, was it incorrect for Solomon to marry these women for political purposes? What was the political deal that was going on? Forget the girl that's involved here. What was the political deal going on? And why was that wrong, biblically speaking? And we're going to tie marriage and politics together with a third problem. Idolatry. Solomon imported idolatry into Israel. He financed it, he built temples for it, and he encouraged a religious syncretism. Can we explain marriage, politics, and religious apostasy? That's the root of the rot. Not that Solomon was wise and wisdom itself is wrong. It's something went wrong with the wisdom. And that's what we want to work with. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you remind us of our clay, that we are fallen creatures, uh, that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet, Father, you remind us constantly of your magnificence, of your omniscience, that you are incomprehensibly majestic. And we ask that you continue to open our hearts, that we have a big enough view of you and a small enough view of ourselves that we can keep everything in the proper perspective. In Christ's name, amen. Question. And I think it's an excellent, excellent question. Uh, and it's a, it's a question that goes to the, to the root of, of the uh, truth of uh, David. It's on that second um, chart, David's uh, conviction, confession, and the restoration. We covered that back when, uh, a week or two ago when we were talking about David. Um, the question is this. What is the difference between judicial punishment, like God sends people to hell, um, judicial punishment where there's a, there's a law issue at stake versus a pedagogical kind of punishment? And what I was doing when I was trying to illustrate that was deal with how David had to handle his problem. He had two problems. And we, we get into this ourselves in our Christian life. One was that because he had sinned, he was facing a judicial problem with God. Um, yes, he was God. He was the, he was the son of the Father. But the sin that he committed, sins, plural, the cluster of sins, were sins. So that's a legal problem. What do we do with the sins? And we know judicially, of course, those sins are captured in the atonement of Christ. However, the way God designs our lives spiritually is he, 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 he ruptures fellowship with us at that point and makes us, before we can't restore fellowship by positive thinking, by going through any kind of gimmick, by you know, doing the Hindu thing or whatever. It, none of it works. The only way the fellowship can be reestablished is if we will come back and we will confess the sin as that which deserves death and which is carried for at the atonement. And he always makes us do that. What he did in David's life, and we know he did that in David's life, because in Psalm 51 there's a little phrase there, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be white. 
in the snow or something like that. Well, the hyssop uh, was the thing the priests used with blood on it, and they sprinkle it all over the place. So it's an obvious case where David, when he says, cleanse me with hyssop, he has a higher view of what's going on. He doesn't view that as just a religious ceremony because he saw it many times, blood all over the place of the animals. And so the priest taking the hyssop and spattering it. Well, David obviously understood that there's more to this than just the animal blood on the, on the stuff here, on the altar. This is a spiritual truth that's going on. And of course, David didn't know about Jesus dying for sin, but he knew somehow there had to be a blood atonement. So in Psalm 51, in the text, it's a story of David's confessing. He first realizes against thee and thee only have I sinned. And that strikes people as kind of offensive because, I mean, there were social consequences to all of the stuff, and, and, and it's fine. But the sin isn't to society. The sin is to God. An easy way of seeing that uh, is when you go to a court, you'll see that the, the, the accusation against the person is an accusation of the lawmaker, which is in this case the state of Maryland or the U.S. It'll be, the law case will be the U.S. versus somebody. What do you mean the U.S. versus somebody? I mean, you know, you, you ran into me. Uh, sorry, it's not the victim. It's the law giving authority versus the, the offender. Because the offender offended against the law. Yes, he hurt the person, but he offended against the law. Well, that's the same thing theologically, is that when we sin, yes, we hurt people, but we've sinned against the law-making authority of the cosmos here. That's the problem. So then David says, I have sinned against thee, and thee only have I sinned. That is talking about the legal side of the issue. And God as the Father is going to train his children. So we recognize that again and again and again and again. We keep having to go back to the cross, back to the cross, back to the cross, and over and over and over and over. And it's a, it's, it's, that itself is a learning thing. Well, that's the legal side in the sense that the cross, the atonement, takes care of that issue. The other side of the problem is the pedagogical, meaning the teaching, a teaching effect. And for the pedagogical teaching effect, God doesn't always remove the consequences. Remember in David's life, remember the consequences? Four sons would die. His kingdom would be just disrupted. So there were some severe consequences, and God did not take the consequences out of David's life. And I think that's a very important truth to understand, because when you're in the middle of this, when it's you who've committed the sin, and you who have caused the consequences in your life, and you're walking along, and you've dealt with the problem before the Lord, you've confessed it, you've convicted that, Yes, you indeed did this, and, and Lord, you know, I confess my sin. I can't, you know, I can't atone for myself. You have to atone for it. Um, you've done that, and then you move along, and you're experiencing consequence, 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 consequence. And while you're in that mode, the danger is that the evil one comes up to you and says, See, God really didn't forgive you. Because if God really forgave you, he would have taken all this out of your life. See, he's really a meanie. And it doesn't matter. And you confess your sin and it didn't work. And I've seen that in my own life and I've seen it in other people's lives. So that's why I think it's really critical to distinguish between the judicial, uh, the judicial issue, which is solved only by confession. 
Not by penitence, not by doing things, not by promising things to God. There's only one solution like there's only one solution to salvation, of trust in Christ. And it, it, sometimes it, grief can accompany it, and sometimes grief can't accompany it. Sometimes you're just in a state emotionally where you're kind of almost like a zombie. And, but you still confess your sin. But the other side of the coin is that the rest of it is there for pedagogical reasons. And it's not because God wants to rub our nose in it. And that's not the spirit of the Lord. It's rather that he runs his universe by certain objective principles. And he wants to illustrate, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. David sowed murder, and David reaped murder. And who is it that David's consequences, well, I say it's pedagogical. Who are some of the recipients of the pedagogical lesson? We are. Because we read First and Second Samuel. See, the royal chronicles of the consequences come down through the centuries, and we all listen. And we say to ourselves, gee, I don't want to do that, because that follows. So that's the pedagogical lesson. But the pedagogical lesson can't be confused with the legal side. Because if you do, it wipes out your faith. Because you can't walk by faith if you think God is really angry at you and there's an issue there. Because now you don't have a clear conscience. Now you're upset because you can't trust him because you think he's going to chew you out. So that's, that's where that balance comes in. Sin can be in the spirit world. A good example is the fallen angels. So there are angels that were called spirits. That's just another name for them in the Bible. And one-third of the angels that were created fell and are evil. And it's from that that Satan comes. It's from that that the principalities and the powers of the darkness. So evil can be spiritual also, as well as just of the flesh. And it can be in the world system. So the Bible uses three words for the domain of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of those are slightly different. The flesh is things that we have and we cultivate. You know, um, a good illustration is an athlete. Um, we all know to do anything in sports, you have to practice. Well, why do we practice? Because our bodies, our neurological system, adapts to behavior. And what we've done as depraved beings is we've trained our responses in a lot of areas in life to a sinful principle. We've become artists through practice. And so the flesh, when you see that term flesh, it, it tends to emphasize the sins that literally are in our flesh. But that's not to say they're not sins of the spirit world and that we and our human spirits can't sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And it wasn't just because they had no, they had flesh, but it wasn't fallen flesh. Now, the first sin ever done was a spiritual sin of rebellion. Spiritual sin is pure sin in the sense that it's very clear cut what it is. A spirit of rebellion, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, rebellion is, is a sin of witchcraft and that kind of thing. Um, so, sin can be in both, both areas. We just happen to be treating. It would be more of a retraining of our faith. 
you have to get back to the, to the proper standards of righteousness. And it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it's, it, we go through a pedagogical process of learning to do right, and it doesn't come natural. I mean, every parent knows that you never have to train a kid to be bad. Right? It just comes natural. I mean, every kid is born potentially a real brat. And we were too. And that's our depravity. Um, but we really have to struggle to be good. The flesh, flesh was fine before the fall. And by the way, the flesh will be very fine after the resurrection. And that, that, that's true. That gets you away from this Greek idea that the flesh inherently is bad. That's not true. Yeah. Yeah, it's always the need to think that, you know, Satan, the first sin was nothing like what we call immorality. And, and, and that ought to shake us something. That ought to make us say, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? The first sin was not immorality. The first sin was, I am going to be like God. Everything else followed. And that's, the reason that's important is in dealing with these things, I mean, like, you know, um, Lynn with her ministry to the prisoners and stuff, we have real gross patterns of, of sin. You, you've got to step back and say, as gross as that is, there's something in back of that. And if you don't deal with what's in back of that, you can sit here with a bar of soap from now until Jesus comes back, and it's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to clean up anything, because you've got a, something else going on in back of that. And that's why I said tonight, one of the principles of wisdom in Scripture is adjusting to authority. And why in the home that's where it's supposed to be the authority. And that's where children are supposed to learn that there are, there's an authority structure there and it, you, it doesn't ask for your permission. It can be a loving authority, but it still is an authority. And if they don't learn it in the family, they're going to learn it on the street. And it may be some cop putting them in jail and getting beat up in the jail by the other goons that are in there. And they're going to learn that, hey, you know, there's an authority out here. So you're going to learn it here, or you're going to learn it there. But you're going to learn it. And that's what we find in, this, in the prison ministry. Some of these guys just don't have it up here as far as, never, never clued that there's an authority principle. And it's really interesting and neat to see the change in behavior once they grab the idea that, gee, there's a God there, and I'm responsible to him. And that just short-circuits all the other stuff. Because it deals with the root. Anybody got any other questions on... Solomon or something. <laughs> yes.
Oh, yeah. Yes, Debbie. That's what I. Th that's a good question about wisdom. Can it be? What's the relationship of wisdom to evil? And <clears throat> that's one of the things we're going to deal with next week because we want to study what happened. What went wrong with Solomon? And this guy had a fantastic gift of wisdom, and and the whole culture. He 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 started the rot that ruined the nation. And you wonder for crying out loud. I mean, this guy asked for asked God for a gift of wisdom. The guy's a genius. And he, and somehow he, he winds up causing the whole thing to fall apart that he built. Why? So I'll, I'll kind of hold on that. And if I don't answer your question, raise it next week. Okay, we've got our time's gone, but so we'll see each other next week.